Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hey guys, Ready or Not 2024 is here, and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it means the absolute world to have your support. What are you waiting for? Become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. All right, welcome back to CounterPoint. So we put A1 up here. The global elites, Emily, have all gathered in Davos. Shouldn't we be broadcasting from there, you think? I was going to pretend that we were. Right. <laughs> we brought this out, or it's a green screen. We're here at Davos. We just got eggs with Klaus Schwab. It's not the same this year without all the Russian oligarchs throwing their parties off, of the, off to the side, because they, they really did throw the ragers, right? Really? Have you been to Davos? I've never been to Davos, but that was, that was always the word. Word on the street. Back when I was at, at the Huffington Post, my old boss, Ariana, obviously was a celeb at Davos. I was going to say. That's... Absolutely loved Davos. Yeah. Um, and when I was there, it was Davos was still on the edge of like having some cred with like hipsters. Okay. Because like people like Ariana. Tech hipsters. Yeah, the tech hipsters. Yeah. Like this was, there's, there was still enough of a whiff of utopianism in the tech world. Yeah. That, that uh, you'd have people, people like, talking earnestly about how they're going to make the world a better place. Actually, today, they're still over there talking earnestly about how they're going to make the world a better place. Whether you want it to be a better place or not. They're going to make it one. Yeah. Uh, now, few, very, you know, basically nobody takes them seriously anymore. Now they just see it as kind of what it is, a gathering of global elites trying to, like, keep together the, the structures that have propped them up. Right. This theme, as, as that article just mentioned, was how much they're failing mm-hmm. and how it, it's all falling apart. Yeah. And that they're trying to re-globalize or deglobalize and then re-globalize or stitch back together this, this dream that they had of this, of this globalized world, which only includes the flow of global capital and global <laughs> elites. Yes. Does not, does not include kind of 
opening up the world in any kind of broader ways. Right. No, that's a good point. And actually, on that point, we want to start with a clip from, hilariously, a panel on disinformation that was, I believe, moderated uh, by Brian Stelter. Now, this is funny for a couple of reasons. I have absolutely no objection to Brian Stelter being on a panel about disinformation. In fact, I think it's a great spot for Brian Stelter to be on a panel. Uh, But if he's reckoning uh, with being a serious purveyor of disinformation throughout the course of the Trump administration, of course, that's not what happened. Instead, it was a panel about how the global elites can rein in the masses via new censorship legislation. You had to have a Democrat pushing back. Weird. Check it out. Here's the clip. Uh, That's why you're saying the rules have to be set up in a way not to be abused. Yes. Uh, Congressman, should we learn in the U.S. something from the structures (laughs) that the Europeans have adopted? Well, look, I think in general the U.S. has a lot to learn in terms of um, data regulation, internet regulation. I mean, you're, you're, you're way ahead of us in that regard. But we've believe very strongly in in free speech. Mm -hmm. Um, I believe very strongly in in free speech. And I think there is a healthy concern in the United States um, that the EU might be be going a little too far. So so I I think you look at this from both perspectives. Yes, they're ahead of us um, and they're doing some smart things that um, I know when I use the internet in in Europe uh, and I get all the warnings about cookies and whatnot, that actually makes me feel safer. That makes me feel better. And a lot of American consumers want that level of security mm. on the Internet for your own data privacy and whatnot. Uh, the EU legislation, I think, should be a non-starter, at least in terms of censorship. And yet you have uh, journalists sort of like Brian Seltzer kind of nodding credulously. Like it's a very interesting uh, conversation to be had. Were you surprised that Seth Moulton pushed back? Yeah, and I, and I think there's two points of, of European kind of Internet regulation. A hundred percent. So on the one hand, like he said, the data stuff. Yeah where he, big tech really is uh, b- blocked or and also required to do a lot more transparency around the way that they collect and cash in on your data. Surveillance like, capitalism. Right, that's some good stuff. Yes, like they, okay. They're pretty tough. It's so like big tech warning, like, we're going to go out of business, we're going to be bankrupt if you keep doing this to us. Like Whenever you hear those kinds of noises from big tech, you're like, okay, well, maybe this is actually a regulation worth, <laughs> worth paying attention to. But Europe does not have the same kind of uh, affinity culturally for free speech that we have in the United States. We're we're almost unique. We've seen that actually from Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, who I believe have, they're on an Aspen Institute board that deals with these issues and have said, you know, I don't know what the deal is with the First Amendment here in the United States. What the heck is this thing? It's a very weird place to start from for a lot of people that, wait, we start from the place that you can say whatever you want? Yeah. That's, that's, it sounds impossible. Like, how can that be? That'd be so dangerous to society. How do you control the peasants? Right, how do you control? Yes, right. And so uh, that, that was interesting to see Moulton kind of saying, you know what, we got a, a trivia question. He ran for president. I actually completely forgot <laughs> He was on like stage that. four, <laughs> the like midnight debate. Yeah. Uh, one or two of them. But I think uh, you, your preface to this conversation about the sort of arc of Davos makes a really good point, which is that what we've seen recently is, I think, a more naked um, and intentional effort to rein in populism. This is a sort mm-hmm. of theme of Davos recently is, you know, sort of how can we rig the system? How can we sort of uh, copy copy and paste laws from one place to the, to the other so we can feel secure um, in, the, in the fact that we have these mechanisms in place uh, to, to control people to our liking. Um, and they obviously make this argument. And you can see one of the good things about Davos is that you can see um, many of them sincerely think this is for the greater good. Mm-hmm. They think they're speaking on behalf of uh, the, the good of the public. 
And it's it's great because you can see that you can see what they think they're saying. You can see what they're you know working through in their own heads. And it's never erring on the side of freedom. <laughs> yeah, and and at a minimum, they think that the reforms that they're offering up and the the ideas that they're throwing out there are going to stave off this populist revolt. So mm-hmm. oftentimes at Davos, you'd have people saying, "You might not necessarily want to do this thing, a wealth tax, you know, whatever it is, but you should do it." or else the pitchforks are coming for you. Mm. That would, that would also often be their relationship with, with populism. And Davos has all sorts of kind of activists that come out there, often kind of foundation-funded activists, who, are, who, who then deliver that message to the elites, to the elites out there. Uh, but oftentimes they just don't know how to deliver it. And actually, if we could put up A3, my colleague over at The Intercept, Ken Klibenstein, flagged, uh, flagged this panel on retirement this and the World Economic Forum, what, what's their headline? This, we desperately need to disrupt our approach uh, to retirement saving. And nobody, I just don't, I don't think that they understand how frightened people get when the global elites start talking about disrupting your retirement. Yeah. They, they, they still have this attitude that they're going to do good for a great number of people and, yeah. that, and that they're going to say that and that we're going to believe it rather than that we're going to say, oh, so now you want to steal our retirement. Mm-hmm. Like you see, you see a profitable way to kind of siphon a little bit more blood out of, out of this stone. Now, of course, they're not wrong that in general there's a retirement crisis, that people need more security. But their solutions that they, that they talk about here are, you know, get banks to make more financial products, yeah. you know, for, for working class people. Yeah. Which is going to translate into banks just hitting working class people with fees throughout their whole life. And this is why Davos, I think, has increasingly used the word credibility earlier. Like, it's increasingly lost credibility because the same people who got us into the Great Recession are the same people who are trying to now get us out of this, uh, the the growing pains of populism, the the cultural pains, the economic pains of populism. And you can see under the surface at things like Davos, um, exactly where their motivations are for something like that. And, and another, let's let's actually roll this video because it is pretty interesting. If we roll mm-hmm. A4, um, it, it ties into all of this when it comes to Social Security. This is Congressman who? I forget. Some Republican. It's, uh, yeah, <laughs> some Republican. <laughs> House Republican, yeah, play it. Uh, yeah, here's the video. What reason the age of retirement? You know, uh, that's interesting uh, that you asked that question. Uh, People come up to me, they actually want to work all Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's on the table you're saying? Well, you know, uh, if people want to work longer, maybe you need to give them an incentive to do it. Okay. Yeah. That's hey. way to solve every one of these problems, by the way. I know, I know. And actually, uh, roll wealth at the same time. Okay, literally nobody is saying that to him. <laughs> that was uh, Rick Allen. He's from Georgia. What's um, the chance he owns a car dealership? <laughs> yes, if you're listening and not watching, I think Ryan just picked up on something uh, aesthetically. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Nobody is coming up to him and saying that. And you know what's interesting is that actually at the same time Republicans are making this message, nobody wants to work anymore. He's saying people want to work more. Now, I agree that people want to work Generally, I think the right overplays this idea that nobody wants to work. But 
you can't have both of those things at the same time. Um, and I think I would be I would be shocked if more than just a couple people who were in different sets of circumstances, maybe they retired and then the market tanked because of the pandemic, which I know happened to a lot of people. Um, but I would be surprised if any folks were, were genuinely coming to him and saying, let me work until I'm 68. I just let me work until I'm 70. Why not? I did Google, and there is a Rick Allen, who's the owner of a GDA vehicle fleet sales in Atlanta, Georgia. If you're uh, right about that. I, I think it's a different Rick <laughs> I was Allen. Say. There are a bunch of members of Congress who have owned car dealerships and are still own, still own car, car dealerships. But, the, right, the, I, of course, yes, like work often does provide meaning to people. And, they, and if people want to continue working uh, longer into their life, of course, I don't think there's anybody who would really support a mandatory retirement <laughs> except for pilots or you know, other professions where you're like, okay, you know, maybe, maybe it's time you do something else. You can keep working, just maybe don't fly, maybe don't fly the planes yep. anymore. Yep. <laughs> uh, but I love how he goes from uh, the, what you pointed out rightly is an obvious lie that people are coming up to him and saying, Congressman, I would just wish that I could work more. Is there something that Washington can do about that? <laughs> to force me just to. force me to work longer into my life. I don't want to do it of my own volition. Mm -hmm. What I want is you to. I want to be incentivized. That, then he goes in and, yeah. see, and he says, you're going to use our head and we're going to incentivize people <laughs> to work longer. But what he means by incentivizing somebody to work longer is basically raising the uh, retirement age of Social Security and otherwise, otherwise making people more economically insecure deeper into their life because then, then they're incentivized to go out and get more money. And this is what the Davos blog post that Ken picked up on is talking about. They're saying people are living right. longer. Thus, we need to create a pathway for people to work longer as opposed to, let me let me just try something out on everyone. Um, maybe the benefit of, of living longer is having more time as you're older to make decisions about leisure, to actually like, that's the point of the the industrial system. You can you know debate all of these different things about industrialization, but one very clear point of the reforms that have happened is that you are you earn a retirement. Right. That is a huge part of our system that we have agreed as a society is a worthwhile ambition for people that they bust their butts for 40 plus years, for decades, provide for themselves, provide for their families, provide for the communities, and then they retire as uh, the, their body gets older, as their mind gets older, and they can enjoy life. So perhaps instead of saying the opposite, right, instead of saying, um, you know, we're going to make you work, now that you're living longer, we have to find a way for you to work longer. Mm -hmm. Maybe what we should think is now that you're living longer, we have to find a way to make your decades of work sustain you into the future. And so to bring this back into uh, the news cycle, you've got House Republicans, not just uh, Rick Allen in the, at the back bench there, but you've got some leading House Republicans who've you know, consistently floated the idea that you know, cuts to Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid you know, ought to be part of some type of uh, reckoning with the, 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 the deficit and the debt around the debt ceiling, that you had McCarthy say, I think, during the election. Like, that's something we're going to look at. Yeah. And you had, then you had a lot of, like, uh, Rachel Bobard and others were like, w what are you doing? Like, we're done with this. <laughs> Shut Stop. the hell up. <laughs> Stop. Stop. Don't, don't do this. Don't talk about it. Like, it's, this is not a winner for you. People don't want people's... And there's also so much more precarity than there was in people's lives even 20 years ago. Like, mm -hmm. it's getting to a place... And also, people are older. Yeah. Like, the Republican base is older. The American public is old, older, like we're, we're an aging society. And so the idea that you're going to go after people's retirement in this way 
the way that Bush tried to do in what, 2005 after his election strikes me as a, a political blunder. But, you know, so the Trump's tax cut was a giant political blunder, but they did it anyway because it was what they wanted. So what's your sense on, on how serious they are about, about really pushing forward on this in, in, in the context of a debt ceiling crisis? I think this is really the thing to watch on the right right now because they're, they're in this transition period and kind of developing um, a, new, a new prioritization, a new set of priorities. They, they sort of understand, um, at least people who are involved in the conversation about where the party should go, understand that the Paul Ryanism, like you were saying, in the mm-hmm. latter half of the Bush administration was a political blunder, that the tax cut bill is a political blunder, that is basically a point of consensus in the conservative movement right now that the tax cut bill was completely mm-hmm. um, misprioritized. That like maybe that's fine. Like it, it actually did. Millionaires are good with it. Though. Millionaires yeah. are good with it. Yeah. Corporate tax cut. Like you can make an argument that it creates jobs, et cetera, et cetera. But we're in a state of cultural crisis, and if all you can talk about is cutting corporate taxes uh, and and just sort of doing. Remember, Paul Ryan said he was going to do this very populist thing, which would be to get the the tax code down to a postcard. You'd be able to file your taxes on a postcard. It didn't come anywhere close to that because as soon as you try to do that, lobbyists latch onto it. And if you're Paul Ryan, you don't have the power to resist that or the will to resist that. So what's happening is this question of priorities and this narrative that is congealing on the right is that these spending cuts, when you're talking about sequestration, when you're talking about negotiating tough with the debt ceiling, which is imminent, that's on the table, that's Mm going to start happening like now, it is happening. Um, What are you going to say? The Biden administration is saying we're not negotiating, period. Uh, Republicans are saying, well, how do we sell this? Because we are going to negotiate because there are serious arguments about spending there. Like you said, aging population, totally outpacing the growth of the economy in terms of uh, Social Security, Medicaid, uh, Medicare. And uh, one of the big questions is, is this about tyranny? And that's the word that keeps coming, statism, tyranny, that the gas stove argument, right? Jim Jordan tweeted last week, God, gun, guns, and gas stoves. And that's the argument that they're starting to land on, that a bigger government means more Davos control in your life, basically. That is not Medicaid. That is not Medicare. That is not Social Security. So if your priority is cutting down big government tyranny, or is it the debt, right? Which one is it? Because if it's big government tyranny, uh, you're not going to want to start with that. There's also just such an extraordinary amount of blasphemy, though, in that whole uh, ga- God, guns, and gas stoves, right? I mean, <laughs> God and then guns. Like, okay, we're love. We're all we're all one. We're all, we're all one people. Uh, and guns. Then you're going to slap the slap that next to it. Okay, but that's fine. You've been doing that for long. And then gas stoves. Doesn't that so radically diminish? The like you're, you're talking about the the infinite the the, the greatest like force on the planet I mean, in the galaxy gas the universe yeah. no God gas stoves <laughs> and, 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 yeah. and gas stoves <laughs> but we got but the, 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 putting those on the same plane the the the, tri, the, the trinity the holy trinity <laughs> yeah, being, like guns gas, gas like come on well it, but that's what they're trying to do this argument is that it's all part of the same thing it's all part of the and Jim Jordan didn't say this but it's all part of the Davos agenda. Jim Jordan on an acid trip. Talking about, <laughs> yeah. uh, all right, and so, and uh, by the way, we have an update. Uh, Rick Allen would have been my second guess. He owned a construction company. Oh, okay, that's close. Oh, that was close. We've uh, got one more thing to show you guys. Yes, so this is a good uh, one. And here's here's Davos in a nutshell. Uh, Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin surrounded by billionaires. Let's roll that. Difference for the American people in the last two years. 
And we still don't agree on getting rid of the filibuster. That's correct. Right? Thank you. They high fived. If you if you're listening, what you what you missed is Can you play that one back. Yeah, yeah no. Manchin jumping in and saying we still don't uh, agree on getting rid of the filibuster, and then they just come together for a beautiful moment. Yeah, nice little nice little high five there. Former Democrat Kirsten Sinema. Yes, I forgot about that. The news cycle moves so quickly. (laughs) All right, let's move on to the news about Solomon Pena. This is a developing story that really caught a bunch of traction yesterday. So he was arrested by... B1 here. Yeah, B1. He was arrested by Albuquerque police on Monday. Uh, They call him the, quote, mastermind behind a recent string of shootings that were targeting Democratic lawmakers' homes. I'm reading from the Albuquerque Journal right now. The suspect is a Republican who unsuccessfully ran for office. He ran for a state representative slot back in November um, and claimed that his election was rigged. He seems to have appeared, he seems to have uh, been at January 6th. He's accused of paying four men to shoot at the homes of two county commissioners and two state legislatures. We actually have video of his arrest. We can roll that on the screen. You see right there, um, you know, he's, he's being arrested by police in, in Albuquerque. Ryan, what do you make of this situation? So, I mean, first of all, people should understand that. So he, he, he got something like 25% of the vote. And there are, you know, maybe thousands, if it, certainly more than a thousand of these types of races around the country where you'll have a, a, a fringe basically a fringe candidate. The party doesn't want to put anybody up because they know they're going to get absolutely hammered. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, people, run, people, people who do run those campaigns kind of run them for practice yeah. to say like, all right, let me see what it's like to kind of hire a campaign manager, to do call time, to, to go to town halls and eat the rubber chicken. Let me see if I, let me see if I enjoy this uh, knowing that I'm going to lose by, by 50 points. And then you're going to have some uh, complete lunatics, you know, who are going to who are going to run for these uh, positions, and so it it appears that uh, he was one of these. Uh, the pol- police say that it, or the, the the New Mexico news media say that he he may have even accompanied these hitmen that he allegedly hired mm-hmm. on on some of these. In one of the uh, in one of the shootings, uh, a what ten or twelve year old girl. Sleeping in the home. Sleeping in the home, yeah. and th- three bullets went through the bedroom. Yeah, which is just utterly horrifying. No, nobody uh, who is running for office signs up for that. No, nobody, no, nobody deserves that. Uh, and so, I do think we have to ask the question: like, what, what is it that's that's driving this this sense that the stakes are so high yeah. that it requires firing bullets off into into people's houses and there's got to be some mental illness I was going say. on here, but but as but the, we've always had mental illness, right? Although we have higher rates, we have higher rates of it, probably. Um, but we've always had significant rates, you know, non-trivial rates of of mental illness in this country. So what it, what is it that's that's producing this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's one of the interesting questions that I, I was actually going to ask is you know, whenever there's, a, like you said, a lunatic, um, you know, the, the shooting from the Bernie Sanders supporter of the congressional baseball practice or the uh, pipe bombs that were mailed to CNN or what, I, th- I think they were pipe bombs that were mailed to CNN. Um, whenever there's a lunatic who appears to just sort of be somewhere on the map, maybe leaning left, maybe leaning right, it gets really wrapped into this narrative about one side's deep-seated problems. And this story absolutely has, I mean, 
this was blanketing MSNBC yesterday, um, which I, I keep on in the background, of course. Uh, of course. I have to see my girl Andrea Mitchell, what she's up to. I got to keep up with Stephanie Rule. But um, it's it's being used in that respect. Basically, like this is indicative of a broader trend on the right. And whenever it's a lunatic, I just hesitate to do that. Um, I think it's entirely fair to say January 6th is indicative of uh, mm-hmm. something deep-seated and something broader. I would say the same thing about riots in 2020. Um, and I think you know, people on both sides would, would probably have no problem actually saying that in an honest conversation. But uh, this guy he's also a felon. And you have this red flag question that was raised actually by the House Republican leader who says this is yet another example of a convicted felon unlawfully gaining access to firearms, which they are barred from owning or possessing and using the weapon in a manner that causes public harm. And we land again on this question of like, can we function as a society anymore? Can we do the basic things, not just as a government, but as a society that are needed to have any sense of coherence? And it seems the answer to that is increasingly no. I think that point about the guns is is a good one and goes to the question of like why is this happening more because if you have if you have more anger and you have you know, either a stable or a slightly rising level of of mental illness but you have three times more guns than you had in the past uh, then you're going to be more likely to see gun violence you know flowing flowing out of that and there it's kind of a fantasy to think that you could have three four hundred five hundred million guns. In a, in a country with 330 million people, and that you would then be able to precisely keep those weapons out of the hands of every single felon or every other person that has them. Like, if, if you're going to have a culture that has that many guns, th- this is going to be a, a result of that. But you're right that in the wake of one of these shootings, you, you, you see everybody scouring kind of the social media feed of, of the person who did this. This one, they didn't have to go far. Because they're trying to divine what, yeah. where the political leanings are. Like, oh, he ran for office as a Republican. <laughs> he was at January 6th. And he was going to go ahead and put that one in the R column over here. But you're right that it is a, it is a contest. And you'll see people um, saying like, oh, God, I hope this wasn't one of our guys. Mm-hmm. Whether, whether that's left or right. Um, you know, as, as they're kind of waiting with bated breath to find information on the shooters that they, then everybody can go into their battle stations yeah. and make their make their political points. Well, and you just also, I think, raised something that's, you said earlier, actually, that um, he was, um, what's the word you used? Uh, oh, that this is, what is it that, is there something that's sort of seeding this um, more and more? And I do think there's plenty of reason to point to Donald Trump specifically, the the lies that he told his own supporters between the election, the exaggerations and lies and like theories that he, I think, irresponsibly, recklessly floated between the election and uh, January 6th and continues to float. Um, That I think is extremely serious. I mean, I'm on the right, I'm happy to admit that. It's not even an admission. It's just like obvious reality. And when you have someone that powerful, um, that powerful using his power, I think recklessly, yes, you're going to get more of this because none of us know who to trust anymore. And the people who come out and say, you can't trust anyone are the ones that are gonna get trust. And then if you abuse that trust, I think that is a a really dangerous and immoral thing to do. And I, I certainly think we saw that. I think there are examples of that um, you know, from, from folks on the left too, where there's just these, these nonsense narratives that aren't actually rooted in reality. Um, but this is a really big one. One. And yep. it, you, it is actually, I think, causing uh, some some serious uh, cultural tension in ways like this. Right, because if you believe 
that elections are legitimately being stolen yeah. by shadowy forces, then you can imagine why you would feel morally compelled to do something about that. That was 100% the case on, on January 6th. You talked to folks who were there. Um, it was this idea that like they, they really truly believed the that Congress was something. stealing the election yeah. out from under their noses in that building. Um, Which and, for the YouTube censors, by the way, they were not. No, they were not. Election. Joe Biden lawfully won the election. Yes. Um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, and, and so a lot of that, you know, is, is completely downstream of, of somebody who's in a position of power um, and whose supporters say, well, he knows more than I do. He's the president. He has access to classified information. He has access to all these different things. So if he's saying it. Uh, there's there's probably more legitimacy than than even I know or the media knows. Um, so it's, it's just an abuse of that power. Speaking of YouTube, uh, so Joe, Joe Rogan uh, threw out an interesting theory we're going to bat around today. Let's, let's, take, let's listen to Joe Rogan on his take on uh, this drip drip coming from uh, Joe, the, the Joe Biden team uh, around the classified documents that keep turning up in his garage, his closets, boxes, <laughs> elsewhere. I don't know, uh, Joe Jack, yeah. I don't know jack shit yeah. about politics, but if I had to guess... I'm, they're trying to get rid of him. Yeah, that would yeah. my guess would be they're trying to get rid of him. If all of a sudden they're his own aides are sending these instead of like taking these classified documents which you have located yeah. and go well let's not do that again and fucking locking them up somewhere his own uh, aides self reporting dude come on that dude. sounds sus well no one self reported that fucking laptop I know that, that laptop, was well that was Russian disinformation. They, that reeks of they, Russian they disinformation. They got a hold of the social media companies and lied to them. They did whatever the fuck they could to keep that from happening. And even this, they discovered this before the midterms. Yeah. yeah so they didn't release the information until after the midterms. Uh, he picks up on something that I think is important that the media is not picking up on, which is these these documents were discovered, uh, the, the first batch that we heard about at uh, Biden's think tank on November 2nd. Uh, when was the election? Like the 8th or something? something yeah, it was, yeah, it was a few days later. So November 2nd. We don't find out about any of this until January. And they turned them into the archives yeah. right away, right? Uh, that's what they say. And then the archives alerted the Department of Justice. Right. And the Department of Justice eventually decides to appoint a special counsel. Yes. But not, but not they didn't immediately, public. they didn't have the FBI director go out and hold a, hold a press conference like with Hillary Clinton. Yes. And so I think a big part of the story we don't know yet is how this became public, why it became public, how it did and when it did. And then Walter Schaub is a sort of ethics um, analyst, um, ethics expert, told The Hill something interesting. Where he's, he's saying, you know, one of the biggest problems for the White House here is that when they were asked about whether there were more documents. They said they just had the pen documents. Uh, and it turned out, of course, it, it seems they knew earlier than when they told the public that there were more documents. And I, that is the big remaining open question. So does any of this point in the direction of what Rogan is talking about, that perhaps um, you know the, the Democratic Party realizes that Joe Biden is uh, potentially you know, senile, he's sort of past his prime, he's not their best, their freshest, youngest, uh, most politically expedient face right now going into uh, a presidential cycle, and uh, they, they sort of see an easy way out given what happened at Mar-a-Lago. And I do, so let's, let's take two of the other points that were made there. One of them being, if this happened to a Trump kid, uh, would the media go absolutely berserk on it? And I would 
say that it did happen to a Trump kid, kid in law, and it didn't. They didn't go berserk on it, so I just pulled up so I could find the date. March 2018, I and my other uh, colleagues over at The Intercept reported, there's our headline, Saudi Crown Prince boasted that Jared Kushner was, quote, in his pocket. Uh, MBS told Confidence that Kushner discussed the names of royal family members opposed to his power grab right before he then locked up a bunch of his those same family members in the Ritz-Carlton torture. There were, a bunch were tortured. One died from uh, torture. Uh, the Daily Mail uh, subsequently also reported that, that Kushner had gleaned classified information on uh, enemies or adversaries or skeptics of MBS within Saudi Arabia and given that intelligence to MBS, who then acted on it by rounding them up. Mm-hmm. So we don't have to ask the question of what would happen if one of Trump's kids had some classified document scandal and what the media would do. Media did almost nothing with that. Mm-hmm. And, the, and it, it gives you a sense of how little and uh, how in bed the media is with kind of the, the Gulf monarchies that they hated, the, they hated Trump so much and loved any story that they could find right, that, was, that was gonna nail Trump. And then they have one where this guy's dead to rights, like taking US intel, handing it to uh, MBS, who then uses it, and so at least one person winds up dead. Although MBS, really, uh, the media really turned on MBS post-Khashoggi. P- Post-Khashoggi, yeah. right. But March 2018, they had, they had every opportunity to uh, unleash on, on Kushner mm-hmm. over doing this. And th- th- they covered it a little bit. I mean, they, like, they would do a couple, they did a couple segments on our reporting, but it, it certainly did not become the kind of cycle that they could have, that they could have made it into. Well, and that's a frustrating part of this story. Whenever there's an opportunity for uh, the corporate press to like latch theatrically yes. onto a narrative to make them look like they're really tough. Like they, they are not lap dogs, they're watchdogs. Uh, they just take it with a plum and then it's trotted out by them as evidence they're really tough. They did this with right. some of the Hillary Clinton stories and they're like, well, yeah, listen, we do this to everyone. And it's like, that's utter nonsense and you right. know it. And think about the stories that the corporate press latches onto and really, really drives home. They are ones that are theatrical, but pure theater because they don't challenge any, any of the current power arrangements. They only kind of reify them in a lot of ways. So when it came to 2016, going after uh, Hillary Clinton's email scandal, mm-hmm. like they were fine. They're fine doing that. Yeah. Like they, they'll, they lit her up for a year over whether she, like, well, you know, about her handling of classified information on this server. But who did that challenge? It challenged Hillary Clinton, but it didn't challenge any of the structural relationships that the United States is embedded with around the world. Russiagate, what does that do? You know, that just uh, portrays Russia as malign and and, and nasty and adversarial to the United States. Like, that's already the status quo. Everybody Mm -hmm. already already believed that 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 was the case. But if you have a story that is going to require you to go up against Saudi Arabia, that is challenging the status quo power arrangement. To, and to Rogan's point, um, it's it's a very precarious position for a party to be in when their president loses the internal party consensus. Um, and Trump is obviously an exception, I think, to a lot of this. But you really start to see things disintegrate um, when you, whenever you have that internally the party is like, ah, what do we do with this Mm -hmm. guy? Which is interesting in Biden's case because um, 
he, if, if you are, you know, holding Biden to his own standards, he's passed a ton of legislation, um, some of his target legislation. He's, he's made good on several big promises, uh, and people feel like he's been productive, but also that he's sort of not very popular with the American people and is, is obviously struggling, um, on a just sort of mental level. So if you start to lose the support, you potentially can get things like I don't think anything was planted or right. planned here, but I do think you get people who are excited at the prospect of saying, well, maybe he just this gives him a, an exit mm-hmm. to sort of gracefully bow out and things can leaks start happening. Things start snowballing. Um, and, and I don't think that's a bad point at right. all. Yeah, I think taken literally, uh, you could kind of reject Rogan's hy- hypothesis, but I don't think you should wave it away that easily, because if, if you don't take it quite as literally as he means it, but in the way that you mean that uh, uh, Biden's weakening power sets up uh, what what people would kind of pedantically call like a permission structure for, for those sabotage. underneath him to say like, you know what, you know, if, if there's a choice of how to handle a particular situation, if somebody has an intense amount of power at the top and is cruising to reelection, that changes your decision about, you know, what you're, what you're, what you're able to do, what you're willing to do in a particular moment. If you, if you sense that somebody's weaker, uh, almost a lame duck, and you're like, well, you know what? There's another document. Alert. You know, call the cops. Yeah. <laughs> like, <there's> another, <laughs> call the Washington one. Post. Call yeah. the cops. Yeah. Get everyone and, together. And uh, Karine Jean-Pierre keeps getting asked about this. Uh, if we could, uh, let's roll this latest with this latest clip from her. Last week, um, you told I think it was Phil that we all could assume, American people could assume that the searches were complete and all the documents had been recovered. Uh, on Saturday, the White House Counsel's Office uh, uh, said that five additional classified documents had been found. Uh, is it safe to assume now that all the documents are uh, have been recovered, all the official records, all the classified documents are back in the custody of the National Archives, or are more searches underway to find out if there's anything else Look, I, I understand your question. We have addressed multiple questions from here. Multiple questions have been answered by the President. I know that you all uh, just spent about some of you, some of your colleagues, maybe you yourself, Zeke, was, was on the phone with my colleague for about 45 minutes that addressed a lot of your questions. Uh, I'm just going to continue to be prudent here. Uh, I'm going to let this ongoing uh, review that is happening, this legal process that is happening, uh, and, and uh, let that uh, let that process continue under the special counsel. We're not. I'm not going to comment from here. Yeah, uh, she. I don't envy the position she's in. Uh, last week, this week, and in the weeks ahead. <laughs> yeah, and it's like because the second that she says, "Nope, we found every single one." Be like, up oh, un- un- underneath the kid's bed. Found <laughs> Whoops. Found another box of memos. And then you get into the Veep scenario uh, where it's like, well, what did KJP know and when did she know it versus was she just intentionally kind of kept out of the loop or unintentionally kept out of the loop? And, um, you know, again, do not envy her position. Some of the Biden classified documents uh, were about Ukraine, uh, which brings us to our next next piece of news. Uh, let's, let's roll the clip here of the po- uh, Polish Prime Minister warning of World War III. Ukraine's defeat may become a prelude to World War III. Therefore, today, there is no reason to block support for Kiev, to procrastinate. Thus, I call for decisive actions by German government on all sorts of weapons to be delivered to Ukraine. Yeah, so this is, uh, they're they're calling for an increase in tanks, by the way, that has uh, induced somewhat of a debate uh, from Germany, because Germany has to give permission, the way this works, for their tanks to be sent 
to mm-hmm. Ukraine. If, it, if it's a German tank, then they have to get permission. It so seems it's, it's leaning in the direction that they're going to do it. So, so here's Ben Wallace, the British Defense Secretary, um, who, who says there's a debate in Germany at the moment about whether a tank is an offensive weapon or a defensive weapon. Well, it depends on what you're using it for. If you're using it to defend your country, I would wager that is a defensive weapon system. This is all coming um, on the heels of that just absolutely awful uh, strike on the apartment building. We have some footage of that. We can uh, roll right now from Reuters. Uh, look at that. Um, how do you pronounce the name of the city, by the way? I don't, it's, Dnipro? It, yeah, Dnipro. So, yeah. yeah, Dnipro. So it's just incredible um, scene right there. There's actually video. You see that yellow uh, kitchen that it just zoomed in on? Uh, some news outlets got video from that kitchen before the strike of a girl's birthday party. Right, right and blowing just, out of candles. And, and you can see that it's the same yellow yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a pretty striking uh, juxtaposition of, of how life can be so normal at one moment and then uh, devastated in the next with these uh, technologies that exist right now from distances people can be struck. And you also had at the World Economic Forum, you had Joe Manchin saying that the United States' commitment uh, to this war was indefinite. Uh, you had the Finnish prime minister saying that uh, the only way, you know, that the only way they, this war could end is if Russia loses it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you're, you're, you have basically a, a global elite consensus um, uh, on the in the West that negotiations around a ceasefire and talks to end this war are just not worth considering. Like it's just it's just not it's not not something that is going to be on a panel mm-hmm. at Davos and kicked around as an idea that anybody should take seriously. It's quite striking. Like the the only uh, you know, the, the only possible strategy, it seems like, for the West here is relentless uh, support of Ukraine until Russia is defeated. Right. Uh, that's, uh, and w- without kind of anybody presenting a picture of what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Like, how does that actually happen? Well, and you'll have people like the Finnish prime minister say, well, the, Russia could just leave. Yeah. That, that is true. Yeah, you know, Russia could indeed leave, and I think that they should leave. I yeah. don't think they should have invaded in the first place. But we're also on planet Earth. They're not going to just pack up and leave. There is no realistic indication of that. And they continue to act. Their strategy is built around exactly that notion that someday uh, the Russians can be induced to just pack up and leave. And, uh, you know, short of nuclear war, it's incredibly difficult in the real world to envision a scenario. And that doesn't mean appeasement. It really doesn't need to, it doesn't necessarily mean appeasement. But the solution cannot be a long, drawn-out quagmire that's much better for defense contractors than it is for people living in the region. Right. I mean, it's insane. Right, the strategy is insane. Yeah, because what they're really calling for is basically a, an endless kind of low-grade war. Right, because right. they're fine with it now. Because they make a bunch of money off of it, and it allows them to um, be, do the sort of theatrical warmongering on uh, the, the sort of campaign stage. It allows them to funnel money to people who funnel money back to them, and uh, it seems like an all-around win-win. Um, and, you know, obviously, obviously, nobody would disagree that there's strategic importance of Ukraine to the West, um, that this is a, a, a incredible, immoral devastation of, of innocent people and of civilians, and that uh, what what Vladimir Putin is doing is an atrocity and is incredibly wrong. Um, but again, if you live in the in the real world, 
it doesn't mean you just hope and, and pay defense contractors enough money that Vladimir Putin says, I'm out. Right. And, and it, it seems like both sides are kind of comfortable with this low-grade war that's going to leave you know, thousands dead every single year right. and, and make reconstruction extraordinarily difficult because you'll continue to have attacks like the one you just saw in Dnipro. And Putin is just fine with it, too, I think, because the, the, big, the big risk for Putin at this point, because his, his main goal, basically, of installing a puppet regime in, in Kiev has failed. Mm-hmm. And so he doesn't want to come out a loser. He wants to be able to declare victory somehow. And so if the war never ends, then he, then he never loses. Yep. So, he, so for that reason, he'd be okay. You know, with basically keeping this war that was going on in the Donbass starting in 2014 going basically the rest of our lives, and and then some. But that's another really good point, which is, if you want regime change in Russia, you can surely change the regime fine. Let's say you have, you wave your magic wand and you do something extra judicial and you just change the regime, whatever, everything's fine. Or that's the outcome of a really, of a a massive war that's waged. Um, That doesn't erase sentiments in Russia and it doesn't erase sentiments in the Donbass and Ukraine that are going to continue to be seeds of tension and turmoil over this, the the sort of uh, complications of this, this region and the, the battles, you know, like we can all agree um, about where we think the the boundaries of Ukraine should be. Um, We can all agree what is an illegal incursion. That doesn't change the reality that people there don't always agree, that people in Russia don't agree with that, and they don't agree to the point that they're willing to to wage war over the territory um, uh, to to make that point. So, I mean, none of that goes away. Um, yeah. with the strategy. The strategy doesn't deal with any of that. And there, there's an argument, of course, that it's the, the thing that sort of creates, the, that just totally destroys the incentive that Putin or anyone else would have to, to make Ill, illegal uh, invasions and incursions like this. Um, but th- I just don't see any evidence for that because Putin um, is, he's taking losses and he's continuing to do it. If we could put up the, this next element too, then this is the, among the fallout from this. Uh, top, U, top Zelensky advisor uh, resigned uh, in, in the wake of comments that he made. Basically, what he said, he he went on live television. He said that it looked like a missile had been intercepted, a Russian missile had been intercepted, mm-hmm. knocked off course, and and landed in this building, which is uh, the death toll is up to forty four at this point, including uh, five children. Mm. Whereas other officials pushed back and said, no, uh, the, the evidence is that it was a direct hit from a, 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 a Russian battleship, uh, that, that the damage of the building shows that it was a direct hit rather than something, uh, something knocked off, off course. And so uh, the, uh, the advisor stepped down as a result of this, though I don't know if it's been conclusively shown um, what precisely happened. It's, it's very, very difficult yeah. um, to say. Yeah. Well, we'll continue to follow that story. And speaking of foreign affairs, let's move on to news about the Foreign Affairs Committee's committee, final committee assignments were released yesterday by uh, the new House Republican majority, slim majority. And uh, there, there's some news on that front when it comes to the Foreign Affairs Committee. Let's put up the tear sheet there. You can see Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, received a slot on uh, the Foreign Affairs Committee. Gosar got his committee back. Um, and Foreign Affairs Committee, I, I'm sorry, she's, she's put uh-huh. on 
Homeland Security. Homeland Security. Right. Um, the debate is over Ilhan Omar on foreign right. affairs. <laughs> Marjorie Taylor Greene is on home, the Homeland Security Committee, which is going to investigate and uh, potentially impeach Alejandro Mayorkas uh, basically right away. Uh, Gosar had also lost his uh, committee assignments in the last Congress mm-hmm. and has them back now. This is also on the heels of news that Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert uh, were fighting in the bathroom um, <laughs> during Kevin McCarthy's uh, speakership battle. Let's put that up on the screen. <laughs> you can see this is a story. Um, I believe that this is a story from the Daily Beast. Yeah, the Daily Beast had this very gossipy uh, piece of uh, information that says, according to another source familiar, um, well, in the bathroom, Green asked Bobert, you were okay taking millions of dollars from McCarthy, but you refused to vote for him for Speaker Lauren. And the, the first source said Green was in a stall and then upon coming out, confronted Bobert about taking that money. Um, and the Colorado Republican, that's Bobert, was allegedly unaware that Green was also in the bathroom at the time. And that's when Bobert says, quote, don't be ugly. And uh, according to another source, out like a little schoolgirl. Debbie Dingle from Michigan is was apparently a witness to this event and has said she stayed silent, the same as uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert, except for adding um, that what happens in the ladies' room stays in the right. ladies' room. I guess that's a good rule, um, just sort of in general. But Ryan, this... <laughs> The Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert drama uh, played out during the speakership battle. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene supported Kevin McCarthy, ends up on a sort of plum committee assignment. I'm sure that's very much what she wanted. She got a a slot that she wanted, Homeland Security, because it's going to be a part of this high profile investigation into the uh, that that they intend to land on the impeachment of Alejandro Mayorkas. They have not been quiet about that. Kevin McCarthy Mm -hmm. uh, shifted from what he told me in an interview in September, which is that we don't start with impeachment. You know, Democrats made everything political, we're not going to do that, to a couple months later saying, yeah, we'll we'll, we'll maybe impeach Mayorkas. So this is going to be a really high profile uh, media narrative. It's going to be a really high profile set of hearings. And Marjorie Taylor Greene got it. And uh, it looks like her support for McCarthy, as was expected, paid off. Uh, But Boebert too, right? How do you mean? uh, She's getting on the the, uh, oversight committee. And a couple of other, the couple of other of the McCarthy critics and who held his speakership up also were rewarded uh, with with uh, seats on the oversight uh, House Oversight Committee, and it began, if you remember, with McCarthy telling them in a private meeting, "If you come at me, uh, I'm going to kick you off of your committees." Mm-hmm. And one of the pieces that they negotiated towards the end of it was, uh, "You won't retaliate against us right. uh, for this." And in fact, it looks like they're going to wind up with uh, you know with some of the plum committee assignments that they that they wanted. So McCarthy tells this story a lot that he when speaking of the oversight committee when uh, when Jim Jordan ran for speaker and Kevin McCarthy drops out Paul Ryan ends up speaker Kevin McCarthy uh, goes to the mat for Jim Jordan going on oversight uh, eventually and uh, McCarthy loves this story because for him it shows the the sort of wisdom behind his strategy which is you give everyone a seat at the table um, and he he thinks of it in terms of at least he said in, in an interview with me Moneyball which is mm-hmm. kind of interesting but uh, he thinks of it in the in terms of that you got all these great players how do you make them work together that's something he told me and he wants to give people a seat at the table, make them feel heard. He meets with the Freedom Caucus people. He meets with the establishment 
you know, people and, and makes them feel heard. And so it's fascinating your point about Boebert getting sort of rewarded too, despite not being as, as an ally of his, is that clearly what he's trying to do is uh, make those, build bridges, right? Build bridges so that when he he's needs the leverage to say, we are not doing this debt ceiling thing over X, Y, and Z. Um, they have a, 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 a relationship, an existing relationship, and the ability to have those conversations and to uh, do those negotiations. Now, I don't know that that's going to work out for him. Um, maybe it makes sense in the sort of cost-benefit sense to try, uh, but I think that's probably what his, what his idea is. Like These people do not want to get on board with me, so I'm going to you know, sort of kill them with kindness in that sense. Yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, right, and he, he got the thing that he wanted, which is to be speaker. Right. And he's going to get this thing that uh, he also probably wants is a little bit of a showdown over the, over the debt ceiling, uh, which yeah. we could talk about next. We got Alexander Hamilton. Let's, uh, let's talk about Alexander Hamilton. To help explain this. Why wouldn't yeah. we? It's a Wednesday in January. Uh, why, why not talk about Alexander Hamilton? Ryan, this is your point for today. Although we're, we're sort of going to, yes, it, this, is, this is my point for today. Uh, and so let's throw uh, old Alexander Hamilton up there. <laughs> uh, and because everybody knows they ought to read the Federalist Papers, right? Every, like, we, we, we all know that. Yeah. Uh, but it's not, uh, it, it, we'll get to it eventually. <laughs> but today we're going we're gonna to help people out because we're going to read a little bit of Federalist Papers number 30. So a- Alexander Hamilton, who wrote almost all of the Federalist Papers, it was supposed to be a joint project. The other guys just didn't do their assignments. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't, didn't turn their work in. Uh, he al- also was the first Treasury Secretary. And so, you know, his, his views on the debt ceiling uh, are important, not, you know, as both the treasure, first Treasury Secretary and also as one of the framers of the Constitution. And so we put up number, we put up Federalist number 30 here, and I'll just read a couple of uh, excerpts from this and, and get your take to see if there is any ambiguity here about whether or not the debt ceiling is unconstitutional. That's, that's, my, that's my take, that there, is, there really can be no such thing as a debt ceiling, given our Constitution and our framework. And so Hamilton writes, uh, the federal government, quote, must embrace a provision for the support of the national civil list for the payment of the national debts uh, contracted or that may be contracted and in general for all those matters which will call for disbursements out of the national treasury. Money is, he says, with propriety, considered as the vital principle of the body politic, as that which sustains its life and motion and enables it to perform its most essential functions. A complete power, therefore, to procure a regular and adequate supply of it, as far as the resources of the community will permit, may be regarded as an indispensable ingredient in every constitution. From a, dis- from a deficiency in this particular, one of two evils must ensue. Either the people must be subjected to continual plunder as a substitute for a more eligible mode of supplying the public wants, or the government must sink into a fatal atrophy and, in a short course of time, perish. And so from there, he goes on and he talks about, okay, imagine that you're not allowing the government to have any, any access, any significant access to resources. What happens uh, when a war comes? So he, he writes... To imagine that at such a crisis, credit might be dispensed with would be the extreme of infatuation. In the modern system of war, nations the most wealthy are obliged to have recourse to large loans. A country so little opulent as ours must feel this necessity in a much stronger degree. But who would lend to a government that prefaced its overtures by 
for borrowing by an act which demonstrated that no reliance could be placed on the steadiness of its measures for paying. What he's, so what he's saying there is that if you default on your loans, who's going to give you more money? Mm-hmm. What kind of a country could you be if people don't trust your word? Like if you're setting your uh, economic foundation uh, on the idea that at any moment you could just decide for some, uh, for some political reasons that you're not going to pay back your debt, then you're going to, uh, you're going to be cast out basically of the inter- international uh, scene. And he, the, the way he puts it is, quote, the loans it might be able to procure would be as limited in their extent as burdensome in their conditions. They would be made upon the same principles that usurers commonly lend to bankrupt and fraudulent debtors with a sparing hand at enormous premiums. So what he's saying is like, you're not going to get rid of debt. The United States is still going to borrow. But what it's going to do is it's going to go out and borrow and people are going, okay, how's 25% sound? And then that creates a cycle then because uh, all of all of that that's actually a cycle that uh, Haiti got itself in because of uh, the way that uh, that France uh, basically came back at them uh, that all of their revenue so something like a three quarters at some point of their of their revenue was just going off the island to their creditors and so when you do that then you, can, you don't have anything to invest in developing your own country and so it seems pretty clear just from that and there's a little bit more we could uh, get into. It seems pretty clear from that that Hamilton, the designer, of, you know, one of the designers of the Constitution, and the first Treasury Secretary would would scoff at the idea of a debt ceiling mm-hmm. that you could just that Congress could just say, you know what, we have appropriated money uh, lawfully, uh, but we are going to then separately say that you can't come up with the money. Uh, in order to cover the appropriations that we lawfully created, right. Hamilton be like, "That's no, there's no, we're not running a government that way. That's not, like that. That's a joke. We're not doing that." And the the argument from the right would be the debt ceiling was sort of lawfully, constitutionally imposed through the system of government. And what you're saying, though, I think raises the question of the Fourteenth Amendment, um, which was a huge debate mm-hmm. over the course of the Obama administration. Bill Clinton, actually, it was a debate in the Clinton administration. Clinton said. Hey, I actually think I've talked to my lawyers. I think right. this Clinton clause. Was ready to blow right through it. Actually, we have that. Can you put up the final element? Um, yeah, there you go. The validity of the public debt of the United States uh, shall not be questioned. That's the key part of it. <laughs> shall everybody? Everybody who who's into government will tell you the difference between you know shall and any other word. Like shall <laughs> is the strongest word that you can write into law. It's like that's it. Like this is it. This is how it shall be. Right. Or how, how it shall not be. Right. So what do you do with that if you're the Republicans? The validity of the public debt of the United States shall not be questioned. So then is the debt ceiling a, a, an opposition? Speaking of American pessimism. Yeah, what's your point today? <laughs> it's exactly that. It's about American pessimism. Uh, and this is a, basically Ryan and I are going to be doing something a little less scripted uh, as we go, we go forward with the monologues, maybe on a, a weekly basis. Maybe sometimes we'll, we'll write it all out, but just so that we can kind of talk through some of these issues in a more free-flowing way. I want to talk about David Brooks's recent essay in The Atlantic, in which he's basically saying, if Americans feel pessimistic, they're wrong. This pessimism that has descended upon the American population is unwarranted. And he gives a few reasons for that. First, he says it's ahistorical. He says, quote, 
The first problem with all this pessimism is that it's ahistorical. Every era in American history has faced its own massive challenges. And in every era, the air has been thick with gloomy Jeremiah's warning of catastrophe and decline. Pick any decade in the history of this country and you will find roiling turmoil. But in all those same decades, you will also find alongside the chaos and prophecies of doom, energetic dynamism and leaping progress. Of course, this is true uh, that you always find these things alongside each other in the United States of America. He then goes on to cite uh, a Gallup poll where 17% of Americans said that America was on the right track in, in today versus 69% in 2000. Think about that. Personal satisfaction, in the meantime, uh, David Brooks points out, your, your satisfaction with your personal life, that stayed pretty stable in the mid-80s. About 85% of people say that they're personally satisfi satisfied with their own life. So where satisfaction with the direction of the country plummets from 69 to 17%, you have people remaining relatively satisfied with their own lives. Well, here's an important counterpoint to that, no pun intended. Arthur Brooks has written about the General Social Survey. He's also written about this in The Atlantic. He calls this one of the greatest paradoxes of our time. All of the statistics that David Brooks rolls out on these reasons for American optimism and dynamism, et cetera, um, many of them are correct. Not all of them are correct. Many of them are correct. But Arthur Brooks points out that one of the biggest paradoxes is that as our material comforts have, have increased, our happiness has decreased. And a great source to look for this is at the General Social Survey, which has been tracking American happiness for a very long time. And Brooks points out that uh, a long-term gradual decline in happiness, so this rise in unhappiness, both a decline in happiness and a rise in unhappiness, you can find in the General Social Survey from 1988 to the present. So why on earth would that be happening um, alongside all of these, these trends and, and rising material happinesses? And I think that's really where David Brooks is missing the point. He's saying that uh, this is distorting reality. This is the second point that he makes, that the pessimism is unwarranted because things aren't all that bad. Well, first, of course, on the ahistorical point, maybe people are pessimistic because they're less happy. Maybe they have all of these material comforts and they're not making people happy. Therefore, their pessimism is warranted. Now, is it a distortion? Things are actually okay? This is what he says. Uh, the, the second problem with the decline narrative is that it distorts reality. Uh, he goes on to say, you know, I'm no Pollyanna. I, I basically think, though, that America today is objectively better than it was before, but subjectively worse. Objectively better, but subjectively worse. So this isn't uh, the fault of the system. It's your fault for blaming the system when everything is good. Uh, he says, we have much higher standards of living and many conveniences, but when it comes to how we relate to one another, whether in the realm of politics, across social divides, or in the intimacies of family and community life, distrust is rife, bonds are fraying, and judgments are harsh, but that doesn't mean the future isn't going to be brighter than the present or that America is in decline. The pessimists miss an underlying truth. The society can get a lot wrong as long as it gets the big thing right. And that big thing is this, is if a society is good at unlocking creativity, at nurturing the ability of its people, then its ills can be surmounted. He talks about how it's so much easier to get water now than it was when you had to go, uh, you, you just get it out of the tap now as opposed to go getting it out of the well. Productivity is up. The price and quality of education um, compared to others in the world is up. Long-term longevity trends are good, which I don't think is necessarily true. We have innovation infrastructure. We have small businesses booming. We have carbon emissions down, economic expansion, cheaper goods, and man, a, a small surge in, in manufacturing. 
this is ridiculous because he's he's cherry picking statistics uh, that that uh, distort reality, right? Like you can you can cherry pick statistics that show decline or uh, an increase or or the fortunes of America sort of increasing, but that's really not what's happening because the I think the better statistics to look at is you have a reversal of life expectancy at birth and mortality about 25 years in the past. We're like basically around the mid to late 90s on both of those measures. That has not happened. Uh, you saw a dip in that when the you had the the uh, world the after world war one and with the flu epidemic um the flu pandemic in the the late uh 1910s and 19 around 1920 that did happen then it didn't last that long it started to tick back upwards but what we're seeing right now um is a huge drop and it is not distorting reality to be pessimistic about that. It's not distorting reality to, to look at happiness dipping. It's not distorting reality to say adult and childhood obesity rates have doubled in 30 years. How much of our health and happiness is connected to that? Things like heart disease, things like cancer, all of those things are directly, in, in many ways, connected to those surging rates. We're talking about doubling in just 30 years. We're talking about rising loneliness, rising addiction on some counts, failing rates in marriage, births, religiosity. All of those things are associated in the United States with happiness. So it makes sense that as those have declined, happiness has declined. And David Brooks says, you're distorting reality. The system is fine. It's you the problem is with. So he thinks it's top down, that it's not by bottom up. Um, and, and this is also just totally conflating two different arguments, right? That reality can be trending bad, um, but you can still have reason for optimism. And, and he's saying those things are mutually exclusive. Um, but it, it's, it is, those are, those are different arguments, right? You, things can be bad and you can still have reason for optimism, as I think we have probably more reason for optimism in this country uh, than in, in many other countries, because we do still at, at present have the freedoms, I think, to correct the system. But because we have the freedoms to correct the system doesn't mean the system isn't broken and it doesn't mean the system hasn't failed and that people are right to be pessimistic about that. And that's what he totally, totally misses. Um, and this is the elite myopia, right? That if, if you're in experiencing hypernovelty as all of us really are. All right. The hacker that you all know as Guccifer, uh, his real name is Marcel Lavar was recently released from a Pennsylvania prison after serving time uh, for his various, ex various legendary uh, exploits. He's now back in Romania, where he uh, had launched his hacking career, and was interviewed uh, by my colleague at The Intercept, Sam Biddle. Uh, Sam joins us now to tell us more about Marcel. Uh, Sam, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. And so back when you were at Gawker, uh, Guccifer right. had... So how, how did Guccifer get in touch with, with you and with Gawker uh, back then? Was there like an open tip line? Did, was your email public? Like what was, and what was your interaction with him? Were you going back and forth back then uh, with him? And then I want to get into who he is for people who don't remember. Sure. So it's, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because when I was um, interviewing him, when, when I was finally speaking with him on the phone after all these years, he said that he had the hardest time getting anyone in the media to um, notice him, to uh, respond to any of his uh, uh, messages at all for a really long time. He said he was basically just like spamming, not just Gawker, um, but the, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian, every outlet he could find um, in the English speaking world and, and beyond. Um, and he just said that no one, no one cared. Um, but yeah, he, he would he would send updates to Gawker and the smoking gun 
um, uh, were his two favorite um, outlets, probably because we. Um, because you actually responded. responded. <laughs> yeah, what what were his? That's such a throwback, yeah. like right. refreshing Gawker and the smoking gun the back smoking in uh, two thousand nine. <laughs> yeah, what, what were his messages like? Were they? Did they look deranged in all caps and that sort of thing? Uh, or they would always, they were they would always start with, um, which I found to be uh, very catchy, with Guccifer transmitting dot 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 dot, which always, <laughs> which was like uh, you know, like, much like the name itself, just I think a sort of stroke of. Um, self-branding brilliance um but th- it was always very um crude and sort of diy in that like the the images he would share which he you know, stole out of people's um uh email uh accounts you know he, he watermarked them himself with this very crudely done sort of looked like it had been done in microsoft paint um <laughs> he, he would sign the images i think often with the spray paint can tool um just saying guccifer um so, you know, this did not have the trappings of like a sophisticated intelligence operation, which, of course, it was not. It was just a guy. And that's what I, I'm glad Ryan asked about the Gawker thing, because that's one of the things I picked up in this interview, which is um, not just an excellent interview, but excellently written. It's so interesting. And the arc of this band from from someone who's sending ostensibly weird emails to Gawker to someone who had a, a huge influence just from his computer guessing passwords is incredible. So, Sam, if you could catch people up on on the OG Guccifer, this is not Guccifer 2.0. This is a very different situation than how it, I guess, uh, the, how it became, how it evolved over the years. Um what what's his backstory and what did you learn when sort of reconnecting with him um, after all of these years and after all these changes in American and world politics? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, he was uh, a taxi driver in Romania um, in, in a city called Erad, um, which is about the size of um, Syracuse sort of industrial town. Um, he has uh, no technical training whatsoever sort of just a computer amateur um but he was fascinated by and remains fascinated by american politics and american the the power culture of the american elite so he literally just started reading their wikipedia entries and guessing their passwords he had had a string of um account uh break-ins with some romanian political figures but um in 2013, he started branching out significantly, significantly to um, the U.S. and had an incredible string of, I think, like something like a hundred different um, targets, you know, the uh, victims, and um, whose mostly AOL and Yahoo um, accounts he uh, broke into. You know, and he was masterful at identifying people who were sort of adjacent to um, power, like. Um, uh, uh, Dorothy uh, Coke Bush, uh, sister of um, George W. Bush. That's how we got the incredible George Bush oil paintings that became <laughs> um, a, a, a sensation and I think really uh, unprecedented look into a former president's psyche. Um, and, you know, he, he also perhaps most famously uh, broke into the email of Sidney Blumenthal, a longtime Clinton advisor, which is how he, um, I think, inadvertently revealed the fact that she had a private email account. Mm. Uh, but, he, but, you know, yeah. the, 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 oh, sorry. Yeah, did, did he know that at the time? Because it's it's fascinating how that came out. So Sidney Blumenthal basically was emailing uh, with an account, I don't remember it exactly, something like HDR22 yep. or something like That's that. That's right, at, yeah. At, yeah. At, mm-hmm. Clinton, at Clinton email or whatever, you know. Basically, it alerted 
the world to the fact that, oh wait, Hillary Clinton has this personal email and, and then more importantly, has this private server, clintonemail.com. Mm-hmm. What, so what else is on that? Did he, did he notice that or was that just in the dump that was sent uh, to you guys and then, and then it was just figured out uh, subsequently? Uh, so he had shared a, um, uh, a a cache of emails with Gawker, and and you know, and also published surf dumped on the internet. It wasn't just it wasn't exclusive to us. Um, uh, you know, I I don't believe that he highlighted the fact um, of the of the email um, in in that initial outreach. Um, I think that you know the the emphasis at the time was. Here are messages from you know a close Clinton uh, confidant, associate, uh, uh, ad- advisor. Um, but I, I don't think that the existence, you know, th- th- it was supposed to be about the substance of the messages, not the sort of you know metadata, as it were, uh, that included her um, her, her contact, her private the, contact. And, and one of the interesting things you picked up on in in your piece is that there's this. He obviously always had this kind of quest for notoriety, um, but he also kind of wants to be able to to be a private person and to um, I don't know absolve himself of of wrongdoing. And he admits that it was wrong to you know go get into people's property without authorization, et cetera, et cetera. But mm-hmm. Sam, how is he reckoning with going from a dude who's guessing people's passwords to um, somebody who who absolutely reshaped the, <laughs> the world um, from behind his laptop, basically. Uh, I think he's conflicted about it, which I think probably most people um, would be. I, I credit him for being sort of uh, transparently um, and authentically self-contradictory about it, right? Like he, <laughs> he is, in a sense, trying to have it, seems like he was trying to have it both ways. He would, you know, at sometimes act contrite and then, boastful um and he also you know repeatedly downplayed his um influence on uh recent history and then would take credit for things i think that um going to prison uh in the united states for four years over four years is a you know generally horrible experience um and to to go through that as a, a foreigner probably uh, even more difficult. Um, I, I think he is now, he, he seems sort of discombobulated now back in Romania with this family that um, he spent uh, eight years away from. I mean, his daughter grew up without him because he spent a prison term in Romania and was then extradited to the U.S. So he's been in behind bars in one country or another for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I think that experience of just suddenly being back with this family that you had been pulled away from for eight years, um, is a really, uh, is, is a really devastating one. Um, so, you know, I, I, it seemed to me like he was trying to sort of err on the side of being normal again, just being a, a, a nobody again. Um, you know, if I can play sort of armchair psychologist, I, I, I might say that's sort of under, that seemed understandable to me after what he had been through. Yeah. Hmm. And he, he talked a little bit about his motive, uh, to you, uh, to looking at, you know, it involved the Iraq War uh, and, and American decline and the Bush administration. Tell, talk a little bit about um, why he originally did this and how he view now how he views his motive. Sure. So you know, it, it's it's interesting because when he first was reaching out to us at, at when he was reaching out to Gawker and, and other outlets, um, his emails were um, 
in terms of any kind of motive or ideology, kind of incoherent. Um, it, it was a lot of references to like really, really uh, uh, worn out conspiracy theories, like you know about the Illuminati, for example, um, and like it, it was really sort of like throwback stuff, um, uh, and, and and you know sort of hard, hard to take seriously. Um, but ten years later, um, you know, he, like I say in the piece, he's still is in a sense a conspiracy theorist and that he thinks there is a, an elite um, pulling the strings behind the scenes, but um, not in a way that is, you know, kooky the way Illuminati stuff is. Yeah, uh, you know, as, as you mentioned, he, he says now that what he was trying to do all along was look for essentially evidence of systemic corruption among uh, the American elite. And uh, he says that you know, that's why he broke into the email of uh, Colin Powell and Zeddy Blumenthal and, and Bushes and people who were you know, famous in entertainment um, and, and, uh, and so forth. Um, he thought that watching from Romania that the United States had lost its way. Um, he described admiring the U.S. deeply uh, as um, uh, a Romanian living uh, uh, under, under communism and that, you know, talked about looking to the U.S. for guidance, and then in the 21st century, um, seeing the U.S. as something no longer to be um, admired as a country that had sort of lost his way. And he thought he would find an explanation for what you call American decline, and what I you know, I, th- I think is the right term for that, too, um, in these emails. Um, and he said, you know, he said openly on the phone to me, he said it was a failure. I never found what I was looking for. But that's what he says today was uh, motivating him back then. Such a great line at the end of the piece where you say, Lazar is a conspiracy theorist, it seems, in the same way everyone became after 2016. He's a man yeah, ahead of his yeah, time. I mean, <laughs> helped to build the time. I, I, I think so. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible the, the extent to which he has, I mean, he said that he spent a, a ton of time in prison reading, um, but the books he was reading that I note in the piece are like, these sort of um, memoirs of the the deep status, oh, like Brennan and yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Like like the the, the the autobiographies of like spy agency chiefs and like Mueller report uh, cinematic universe people and like <laughs> it, it was it was these were all sort of like airport politics books yeah. that he was just guzzling in prison. And as a result, you know, he he sounds like someone who has been watching um, CNN or MSNBC or, or Fox for the past, uh, well, probably less Fox, but you know, someone, someone who'd been watching uh, uh, Trump-Russia coverage um, obsessively and, and like tweeting about it for, for years and years. Of course he wasn't, he was in, he was in prison, but um, you know, he, he, he has sort of taken on this mode that I think uh, uh, has become super popular in, in the U S um, of, you know, of, of, of believing in, in um, these great political conspiracies. And, you know, as, as we've seen over the past several years, those often end up being, you know, if not as true as they were supposed to be at, at first, you know, having elements of truth in them. Mm. And one takeaway from the story, I think, is that if your elementary school is on your Wikipedia page, don't make that one of the uh, answers to your Email recovery yeah. question. Yeah. As, okay. as you said in the piece, he was using email recovery questions of these super famous people as a way to hack into their, yeah. their emails. So if it's publicly findable information, just pro, pro tip right there. I'm going to check your way. You, you, use use two-factor <laughs> login. It's always a two-factor, good idea. Two-factor, yes. <laughs> yes. Sam, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
Well, Ryan, we started the show with Davos and we're ending on this note about Guccifer and how he was able to guess the passwords of sort of the Davos set um, and, and change the course of world politics. By doing that, behind his, his laptop screen in Romania, he got locked up for years, he comes back out, and uh, what we've, we've seen transpire in the years since is this sort of desperate clinging to power. Um, and that was some of, sort of a theme of to, today's show. I think that's fair. You, uh, actually, a coherent show. How about that? <laughs> actually, a coherent show. Weird. Yeah, we won't can do tie that it all again. together. Don't worry. Yeah, don't yeah. get used to that. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll see you back here uh, next week, Wednesday. Uh, as you as you can tell, we're here on Wednesdays these yeah. days. Yeah, uh, Wednesdays. It's good to be here on Wednesdays. There's uh, so much, so much news. So we'll see you then. All right. See you later. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.